Support for this podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. An unexpected medical emergency can cost you. It can cost you even more when you're traveling abroad. Protect your trip at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Where is the evidence besides the two guys that disappeared that this is the kind of guy that would do it? Um, and is it possible there's another explanation? My colleague Ryan Mills and I were discussing former Collier County Sheriff's Deputy Stephen Calkins. Calkins was the last person to be seen with Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams, two young men of color who vanished three months apart in the early 2000s in Naples, Florida. The last time anyone saw Felipe or Terrence was in Calkins' patrol car. Calkins, who is white, has never been arrested or charged in the disappearances. Yet, according to the sheriff's office, he is the only person of interest. One thought that stuck with Ryan was that despite his many inconsistent statements, Calkins could be a victim too if he wasn't involved in making the men disappear. In my mind, there's so much evidence that, yes, he lied and he did things that were not right, but there's, I don't know, I didn't want to jump to conclusions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't want to indict the guy either when he hasn't been indicted. Like that's Yeah, I mean, just journalistically, we got to be careful. We do. As reporters who have been following this mystery for years, we can offer the most comprehensive look at the case that we're capable of providing through interviews, research, and records. As fact-driven journalists, we can't speculate on whether Calkins caused Felipe or Terrence to disappear. It's hard to make another explanation, but I didn't see from the people I talked to that this is a guy that anybody should be afraid of. Roughly how many people did you talk to? Gosh, I probably reached out to over 100 people. And again, not that everybody picked up the phone or everybody agreed to talk with me. But, you know, I did talk with people that did know him when they were in high school and when they were children. We wanted to know, what was Calkins like as a person? What was he like as a cop? Were there any red flags and records that he was racist, unstable? The kind of guy who would do something to Fleet Bear Terrence? We brought our questions to the former prosecutor who investigated Calkins. We reviewed Calkins' personnel files and arrests he made over his nearly two decades as a deputy. We also asked an expert to determine the odds that Calkins' connection to these cases was a coincidence, which is what Calkins has called it. And I traveled to rural Illinois, where Calkins and I both grew up, to see if I could find answers to, who is Stephen Calkins? This is the last ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Janine Zeitlin. Episode 5. Good guy or bad cop? Of course, we had hoped Stephen Calkins himself would help us answer our questions. We reached out to his lawyer's office by email and phone. A receptionist answered during one attempt. She told me, he doesn't want to talk to anybody. Unfortunately, he gets threats all the time. I did talk to his lawyer, John Hooley, briefly in 2021 for a newspaper story. He told me, this is not a guy who took Terrence Williams on a one-way ride to the swamp. This is Andy Griffith. I called the only number I could find for Calkins in public records. It went to a generic voicemail. My name is Janine Zeitlin. I'm a reporter in Southwest. I wrote him a letter. I sent the letter certified to Iowa, where he and his family moved years ago. They own a three-bedroom home that tax records value at $225,000. I didn't get a response to that either. So, in a last-ditch effort, in 2022, we asked journalists in Iowa if they could go to his house. Good morning. Um... 
It's about 9.30 in the morning on Thursday, March 31st. Uh, my name's Cleo Crage. I am a reporter at the Iowa City Press Citizen. My name is George Shilcock. I'm Cleo's colleague, also at the Iowa City Press Citizen. And we're just pulling up to the house in Cedar Rapids. Um, the houses all kind of look the same. Okay, getting slightly nervous now. What about you, George? Not feeling as nervous. It's good. Just pushing it down. Near the door, they found a sign that read, Absolutely no soliciting whatsoever. Friends, family are always welcome. If that's not you, then respectfully, please do not knock. No trespassing. Highly contrasted with the wreath that says welcome. True. They do have a nice Easter wreath with little colorful Easter eggs and three bunnies, all of whom are wearing colorful vests. They rang the doorbell and knocked. Okay, well, they're not here. Either that or not answering. Calkins seems to have an outwardly normal life. According to what can be surmised from our record searches, he and his wife have stayed married, and they have three grown children. Calkins is in his late 60s now. I wasn't surprised we didn't hear back from Calkins. He has long been publicly silent on the disappearances. He would never talk to me. Steve Calkins, to me, other than what I've read, is an enigma. Dennis Husty is a colleague of mine who is now retired. He was a reporter for the Fort Myers News Press and among the first to write about the disappearances. I repeatedly went by his house, left notes. One time the garage door was even open. I know somebody was home, but nobody would answer the door. And yeah, I made every effort to try and talk to the man, left messages on their phone, nothing. I met Calkins around 2006 when I was first reporting on these cases. I showed up at his door. I brought my boyfriend, now husband, because I was scared of how Calkins may react, given what people thought he did. I told Calkins I was a reporter. He started to pull the front door closed. But then I said, I saw you're from Ottawa. I'm from Ottawa. He didn't believe me. He gave me a quiz. What's the state park near Ottawa? Starved Rock, I said. He smiled. I interviewed him at his door. He was barefoot and wore a sleeveless Harley Davidson shirt. He had glasses and a gray beard. He was polite, didn't show anger toward me. He said he was a victim of very bad luck. I wish it wouldn't have blown up in my face. I didn't do anything wrong, he said. His kids were playing nearby. He told me he was a family man, an old-fashioned cop who often gave people rides. In his personnel file, I found thank-you notes from people he gave rides to and several letters that recognized his courteousness. After our interview, he sent a letter to my office. He wrote that I seemed nice, but my visit had upset his wife. He asked me not to come back. I threw away the letter. I never imagined I'd still be reporting on this story so many years later. Perhaps naively, I thought these disappearances would get solved. And that doorstep interview appears to be the last time Calkins talked to a reporter. Stephen Calkins and I grew up around corn and soybean fields just outside the small northern Illinois town of Ottawa. I played in those fields. Calkins worked them. He was a farmer. His father was too. Ottawa is a pretty town of about 19,000 people. It's an hour and a half southwest of Chicago and sits along the Fox and Illinois rivers. About half of the households make less than $50,000 a year. 
it's not very diverse. Most people are white. Ottawa is known as the site of the first debate between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas during their state Senate race. It's also known as the home of a company that, in the 1920s, employed women to paint glow-in-the-dark watch faces with radium that ultimately poisoned and killed them. In fall 2020, when I went home for a visit, I drove my mom's car to the County Genealogy Guild to see if I could dig up Calkins' yearbooks. A volunteer pulled the Ottawa High yearbooks from 1968 to 1972, the years Stephen Calkins had attended. I attended some decades later. Uh, I'm in this back office area here, so if you need anything, just give a shout. Okay, great. Thank okay. you so much. I appreciate it. Let's see. Calkins, Calkins, Calkins. I saw people I went to church with. I saw my old teachers as their younger selves. And I saw that Calkins didn't appear to be involved in much of anything in terms of sports, the band, clubs. There he is. He's got a collared shirt on and clean cut, hair swept to the side. What I also noticed is that Carl Hulse was in Calkins's class. He's the uncle of one of my best friends, Melissa. She still lives in Ottawa. The next day, Melissa and I met in my parents' garage with the door cracked and a space heater. It was before COVID vaccines had arrived. He was the last known person to be seen with two men who have never been seen again. Crazy. Yeah, he was a police officer at the time. Yeah, I mean, that I think is one of the most disturbing aspects of it. I mean, Ottawa's a a smallish town, Mm -hmm. so just a little wild that that, just the connection of it all. Yeah, the last name is Calkins. Have you heard that last name around? I don't think so. Because usually in Ottawa, you can kind of be like, oh, that's so-and-so's brother or so-and-so's nephew or like those kinds of instant connections. I just don't have that. I went to LaSalle County Genealogy Guild yesterday and I was looking through the yearbooks and his picture was near your Uncle Carl, which I thought was kind of an odd connection. That's funny. Uh Uh-huh. So do you think your uncle would, would talk to me about him? Sure. I mean, we can ask. We got Uncle Carl on the phone. Nothing really stood out about him other than that he was from a farm community, seemed to get along with everybody. I don't know whether nondescript is kind of a good word, but he wasn't a big social kid, not a sports kid, but somebody who kind of just was there in the background those four years. I do remember him as being a decent guy. I do. He didn't recall much else. They had shared an activity. Military. It was an ROTC in the high school, and everybody had to do it when you were a junior or a senior. My colleague Ryan connected with dozens of Calkins' old classmates. Most of them didn't remember Calkins or recalled little about him. But some did, and their memories were similar to Melissa's uncle. Ryan talked by phone to Charlie Ogden, who said he ran in a similar crowd as Calkins in high school. He was just a, you know, just farm kid. Nothing special about him, but there wasn't anything different about him. He said the farm kids didn't have time for many extracurriculars. They had to work, but stuck together at school. Well, all the basketball guys hung around together, and all the football guys hung around together, and all the farm kids hung around together. You know, we talked tractors, and, <laughs> and they talked trash. <laughs> but there was nothing about Steve that you're saying that, that stood out to you, that he was in any way, you know, odd. He, he wasn't like the odd person in the group or the, the guy that was really dark or, you know, the lo- a loner or anything like that. No, no, not at all. I always liked Steve. I tried contacting family Calkins had left in Ottawa. A woman who picked up the phone scolded me for calling and told me to lose their number. My colleagues tried to reach other relatives, including Calkins' siblings, but didn't hear back. 
Ryan searched social media for clues. He didn't see that Calkins had much of a social media presence, but he did find some photos his mother-in-law had posted. She had posted pictures of him, like the family had together on Christmas and things like that. Um, there was a, I found a post from, I think it was his son. It was him and his wife out on their anniversary dinner. It was all just very kind of, you know, nothing scandalous or anything like that. Um, it was just kind of nice scenes of, of that. I asked Ryan about his most compelling conversation. The interview that I would say that you really need to listen to is the interview I did with his ex-girlfriend. Her name is Mary Logan. She and Calkins met when she was in college. She said they broke up when he decided to move to Florida. She was living in Michigan when she and Ryan talked by phone in 2019. I met him through his sister, who was a friend of mine. And um, we were a couple for probably, I don't know, two or three years before he moved to Florida. I was very close with his family. I still am close with his family. They're wonderful people. What was he like as a person? Funny, honest, um, caring, compassionate. I never saw an angry side to him. I never saw... um, an outburst of something that would have made me afraid to be around him. So you you have probably a better sense of the impact this has had on him and his family. When you live in a community and you have children and a wife and then, you know, something this, you know, heinous gets attached to you and now you get Tyler Perry, who's a celebrity that involves themselves in your life when maybe you thought, hey, this is behind me. I can't imagine. Filmmaker Tyler Perry has long been an advocate for the families of Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams. He was at Terrence's mother's side in 2018 when she and her attorney announced a civil lawsuit accusing Calkins of killing Terrence. Calkins fought the suit. Yeah, I mean, right now he's being sued for wrongful death for one of the men that disappeared. It's really hard for me to believe that he would have been involved in something that was... Um, illegal or horrible or, I mean, I, I, not only do I not want to believe it, I don't believe it. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Medical emergencies, travel delays, canceled flights, anything can happen when you travel. That's why more than 70 million American travelers choose Allianz Travel Insurance to help them with headaches along the way. Get a quote and learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at RosettaStone.com slash NPR. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematicinvesting. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. 
So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Stephen Calkins pursued a career in law enforcement for practical reasons, it seems. According to Calkins's application to the Collier County Sheriff's Office, the reason he left farming was because there was no future. The money was bad. He had a brother and sister living in Naples. Florida promised opportunity. He wrote, Collier County deputies are well-respected, well-trained, and seem to have a very good future. That is what I'm interested in. In 1987, he was hired as a deputy. He was in his early 30s at the time. Even before the disappearances, his law enforcement career had an unusual characteristic. He had quite possibly the most bland record any law enforcement officer has ever had. He made less arrests than any other person in the Calgary County Sheriff's Department at that time. Doug Malloy was the chief assistant U.S. attorney for Southwest Florida in the early 2000s when Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams vanished. He investigated Deputy Calkins. We looked at arrest reports from Calkins' career. Malloy's statement rang true. The sheriff's office found no arrest reports by Calkins for 2002, 2003, or 2004. That perked our attention. Sheriff's office leadership initially expressed concern by the lack of reports, but eventually landed on an explanation. The agency concluded that Calkins was by then a senior deputy, and he routinely assigned the writing of reports to more junior deputies on scene. There were signs that Calkins was getting tired of the work. In his 2000 performance review, Calkins said he looked forward to leaving Road Patrol. He wrote, I need to take care of my family at night. I am 46 years old and have seen enough. I have the nightmares to prove it. When Calkins was questioned in 2020 by a lawyer representing Terrence's family, Calkins said this about his work as a deputy. I tried to do the best I could. That you always strived and worked hard to comply with department policies, correct? I tried. That you were not a lazy officer, for instance. I don't know. You don't know if you were a lazy officer? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. I was getting a little burnout, I think. Well, were you a lazy officer or not? Maybe. In what way? In what way were you lazy? If I recall, I wasn't writing as many tickets as I used to. All right. Could have done better with traffic, which, frankly, between you and me, I agree is boring. So you, you could have done better in your traffic performance, correct? Yes. All right. And now as you reflect back, you realize maybe you were being a little lazy because you were burned out, correct? Probably. So that's probably why... Like in 2003, you only wrote 12 traffic tickets the entire year, correct? I don't remember. I do. 
To put that in perspective, that would make the three tickets Calkins issued Felipe a quarter of his ticket count for the entire year. Calkins gave him those tickets after responding to a minor traffic crash Felipe and his brothers were involved in. Felipe's brothers last saw him in the back of Calkins' patrol car. In his 17 years with the sheriff's office, Calkins didn't advance much. It wasn't until near the end of his career that he rose one rank above deputy, to corporal. Yet, supervisors regularly gave him good reviews and encouraged him to pursue training. Though, one review noted that Calkins received counseling in 2000 for unprofessional behavior towards citizens. The sheriff's office did not have more details on that. Twice in the late 90s, Calkins received recognition for saving lives. One was for providing CPR to an unresponsive man. Another was for saving a man who was pinned beneath a truck. Still, Malloy, the former prosecutor, told my colleague Ryan that those kinds of accolades are not uncommon for someone in law enforcement. If you review his, and I'm sure you have, his personnel file, mm-hmm. I mean, he was well-regarded, it seemed like, in his, pers- in his personnel reviews. He got good reviews, for the most part. He got, uh... He got what every cop gets when they do something in the community. And I don't denigrate, it's a very important part of the job. But there wasn't any valor, there wasn't any commendation that's not in everybody's file. Forget about everything you saw on TV. Some people come in, punch a time card. Ultimately, Calkins was fired from the sheriff's office following an internal affairs investigation related to Terrence's disappearance. Along with digging through Calkins's HR file, we searched case notes from the disappearances for any more clues about Calkins. One tangent we didn't understand was why investigators early on seemed to zero in on questions of Terrence's sexuality when they were supposedly investigating Calkins. Terrence's roommate told the sheriff's office that Terrence was, in fact, very much heterosexual. We asked Malloy about that thread of the investigation. All right. The only way I think that was explored was to see if the target, you know, was prejudiced against gay people. I mean, not for any other reason but that, because we never shifted the investigation away from the cop. We also asked, did investigators ever look into Calkins' sexuality? That subject never came up. I mean, we're asking everything about him, you know, to people that, that knew him or rode with him. I mean, but remember, this is an investigation of police corruption. All these people you talk to about Steve Calkins, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking to a lot of those people too, probably. Okay. And... I'm not getting anybody saying this is a guy who was angry or this is a guy who had a rage problem or, a, a, you know, he was racist or anything. Did you get anything like that from the people you talked to? Um, no. Rage. There's, you know, unfortunately, as times change, people have a way of what was an off-color remark 20 years ago would be damning. Now, but we didn't find any rage. We didn't find any racism. I'm not sure which off-color remark Malloy was referring to, but if you've listened to earlier episodes, you've heard the dispatch call of Calkins referring to Terrence's car as a homie Cadillac. Calkins uses a tone and language that the lawyer representing Terrence's mother likened to someone using blackface. Malloy prickled at the notion that law enforcement didn't investigate Calkins thoroughly. It's funny, I, you know, Tyler Perry got involved in this case. They always come in expecting that it's some good old boy investigation trying to protect one of their own. And that's bullshit. We did everything we could to do this. 
I don't think there's ever been a more intense investigation into a public corruption case. But I questioned if Calkins' co-workers at the sheriff's office would be fully forthcoming about a fellow cop. Still, records show a doctor evaluated Calkins near the end of his sheriff's career to see if he had issues. The doctor found no significant anger control problems and said that Calkins did not appear to have a strong racial bias. But to Terrence's family, to me, the homie Cadillac call sounded like a red flag. In the case files, I also came across this recording of Calkins from 2004, a month after Terrence disappeared. It was part of an internal affairs interview. The audio quality is not great. I just feel like the, this agency needs to stand a little bit taller here, and uh, I just, uh, I'm not going to go through the mud no more because a couple of scumbags are missing. Is this being recorded? <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's no. If you couldn't hear that, Calkins said he was tired of his name getting dragged through the mud because, quote, a couple of scumbags are missing. And no one in the room called him out for this derogatory description of two victims. In a 2020 interview with CNN that we obtained through a public records request, retired Collier Sheriff's Detective Kevin O'Neill said this about that moment. I never heard the tapes. I only read the uh, transcript and but put myself in that position. I don't know if it's an t- investigative technique for him to maybe continue on his rant, to laugh with him, to make him go on, and maybe he would say something incriminating. I don't know. But from what I knew from some of the investigators, that he was always, always arrogant when being interviewed. The detective also noted something else that was significant about the scumbag's remark. It's contradictory what he reported of the interactions with Santos and Williams. They were sweet, they were nice guys, they were this, they were that. And now all of a sudden he's calling scumbags. So he's all over the place. So, I mean, to try to put a mental picture together with this guy, it's tough. I'm I'm not a psychiatrist. The CNN reporter asked O'Neill about tips that appeared in the case files that Calkins could have been part of a white supremacy group. You know, it's a lot of speculation. I mean, it's something that, it's a theory that could be put forth by people it's something that, you know, if it comes to fruition, it comes to fruition. But I have no direct evidence or any indirect evidence tying him to any sort of hate group. During the 2020 questioning with the lawyer for Terrence's family, Calkins denied being a member of or associated with the KKK. Calkins had to answer the lawyer's questions because it was a deposition that was part of the civil lawsuit against Calkins filed by Terrence's family. Were you ever associated with any uh, white supremacist type groups? No. Are you aware that during the course of the investigation, that was one thing that was investigated, was whether or not you were associated with any type of groups? No, I did not. How does that make you feel as you sit here today knowing that? Uh, it makes me feel pretty bad. Malloy told my colleagues that investigators didn't find any evidence of memberships, allegiances, or other cops involved. We weren't hearing or finding anything too telling in the records. Was there anything we could conclude from arrests Calkins made and incidents he responded to throughout his career? I asked another colleague for help to review Calkins' arrests. My name is Rachel Hyman Mercator. I'm a watchdog government reporter at the Naples Daily News. Rachel reviewed more than 300 arrests Calkins made during his time at the sheriff's office and nearly 2,000 incidents he responded to. He worked several years in Immokalee. It's a small farming town in Collier County, about an hour from coastal Naples. More than 60% of residents there speak Spanish at home. Felipe Santos lived in Amakli before he disappeared. 
I did notice that most of the arrests were men of color, and most of them were in their 20s and 30s. But of course, that could be due to the demographics of Immokalee at the time, where he worked before he worked in North Naples. She estimated that roughly 80% of all his arrests were of people of color. But it was hard to get more specific. Because, she said, in reports from earlier decades, race was often listed only as light, medium, and dark. Most of his arrests happened while he's on routine patrol. He arrested quite a few people for having a suspended license. He also arrested people for things like loitering, disorderly conduct, intoxication, things like that. We talked about the absence of any arrest reports from Calkins in the few years before he was fired. I asked Rachel if she noticed any changes in his arrests before that time. Between the 80s and 90s, his arrests were always consistent. Nothing really changed in terms of the types of crimes he was arresting people for or the frequency of arrests. Um, There was really nothing to indicate that he was slowing down. We also wanted to hear from Calkins' sheriff's office colleagues. Ryan reached out to some. Most of them didn't want to get involved, including the guy in dispatch the day of the homie Cadillac call. That deputy got a reprimand for conduct unbecoming of an officer once the call came to light. I did talk with one of his colleagues. Oh, God. Uh, Vito. Vito? Celebrity, I believe? Celebrity. Vito would not let me record him, but he was okay with being on the record. He was the guy that Steve went and talked to after he allegedly encountered Terrence. And he wanted Vito to run his name and run it through a system at the sheriff's office to try to figure out who he was. Vito was adamant that Steve didn't didn't do it. He was pretty strong. Brief side note here. Remember all those inconsistencies in Calkins' story we talked about in the last episode? Add to that pile Calkins' statement about when he asked Celebrity to check out Terrence. Calkins told Internal Affairs that he asked Celebrity to run Terrence through a Florida database of driver and vehicle information on the day he stopped Terrence. It was a way to explain why Calkins had some of Terrence's personal information on the day of his disappearance. But records showed Celebrity ran Terrence the day after Terrence disappeared. Celebrity, who was fired by the sheriff's office for misconduct unrelated to the disappearances, told Ryan that he saw no change in Calkins's appearance or demeanor the day Terrence disappeared. He said Calkins was liked by his coworkers, that he had a dry sense of humor. You can hear that in Calkins's deposition. Do you agree with me that you have average intelligence? Thank you, yes. Do you uh, agree with me that you don't have memory problems? I can't agree with you there. Really? Okay. When did these memory problems begin for you? I don't remember. (laughs) That's a good one. But it's hard to know what to conclude from these glimpses into Calkins' personality. Almost everybody I talked to described a person who kind of really was what he says he was, which was a dad, um, a husband who didn't get into much trouble, kind of kept to himself. I do think that in terms of character witnesses, they were strong. But in terms of whether or not, you know, that clears him of any sort of suspicion, clearly that is not the case. Do you still feel like that? Is it possible that he was just this, was kind of the subject of a terrible coincidence? Yeah, for sure. I don't know what the explanation is, though. It's not like I've got another theory that you can say, well, this is the equal one. We looked at other people and things that the cops were running down. And although we didn't give much in terms of people that were offered alternative theories to Felipe, there was some stuff with Terrence you could say, you know, people claimed they saw him 
or mm-hmm. the cops were questioning his buddy about any connection to drugs. A little background about those tips. In the case files, there are several reports of people who thought they saw Felipe or Terrence. However, none have ever borne out. I listened to the interview where law enforcement was questioning Terrence's roommate about the potential he was involved in or selling drugs. His roommate said he saw no evidence of that. I've never seen him with any dime bags or any type of narcotics on his person. He didn't even smoke the joint in front of me. A sheriff's office spokesperson said there was no resolution on the drug questioning. But Ryan's thinking was that if one of the disappearances could be explained by something else, the coincidence theory would look more plausible for Calkins. Yet, an alternative theory that doesn't involve Calkins has not come to light. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies. That includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. In the absence of an explanation for why Felipe and Terrence disappeared, we are back to these facts. The last time there was a verified sighting of Felipe Santos or Terrence Williams was when they each were in Calkins' patrol car. He lied, and his story changed when questioned about Terrence's disappearance. Calkins told his agency he had nothing to deliberately lie about. He said that by the time he was questioned, he couldn't recall the details. We have Calkins saying his link to Felipe and Terrence was a coincidence, and we have facts that led Calkins to being the person of interest in their disappearances. And yet still no one has been charged in the disappearances. Their bodies have not been found, and there's no evidence they're alive. After all these years, years of interviews, years of investigating Calkins, years of looking into tips, what will move these cases beyond these circumstances? 
It's a question we'll bring to the people closest to the case later in the podcast. But one small thing I could do now with the facts was check the math of the coincidence theory. What was the probability that Calkins meeting both Felipe and Terrence before they vanished was a pure coincidence? I found an expert to ask. My name's Daniel Weiner, and I work at Boston University. I'm an associate professor of mathematics and statistics. The professor had asked for some data before we talked, including the number of certified deputies in the Collier County Sheriff's Office. There were a little more than 600 certified deputies in 2003 and 2004, the years Felipe and Terrence went missing. What I did in response to your data was I made such assumptions about the uh, deputy and the missing persons uh, to set up a situation where I was essentially assuming absolute coincidence, total randomness, nothing strange, nothing influencing, no dependence on anything special. He calculated there was about a 1 in nearly 400,000 chance that Calkins could have been the last deputy in contact with two missing men and that it be a pure coincidence. The professor helped put those odds in perspective. Well, if you can imagine a person taking a fair six-sided die, you know, one of the two dice we usually play with in games, imagine that person looks at that die and says, well, I'd like to roll a three. And in fact, I'd like to roll that die seven times and get three every single time. I made that calculation just to give you an idea. And the idea of getting a three seven times actually has a bigger probability than the probability of your deputy's coincidence. It's such an extremely small probability that while acknowledging it could happen, it certainly could happen, uh, I would feel extremely uncomfortable with that null hypothesis of a coincidence, and I'd be searching for other more dependent factors that could have influenced them. Now, since I'm not in law enforcement, I couldn't say what those might be, but I would be searching for them. In other words, based on the math, he would not trust the assumption that all this happened purely by chance. The CNN reporter asked retired Detective Kevin O'Neill a similar question, whether it was possible Calkins was just unlucky. Well, anything's possible. I mean, as a good friend of mine would tell me that it's possible the sun would fall out of the sky today, but it's a probable no. Is there a slim possibility that he's a victim of circumstances, bad circumstances? Yeah, but I'm not buying it. We asked former federal prosecutor Doug Malloy to weigh in. Do I think it's a coincidence? No. That's it. Up till now, we've spent time dissecting how the sheriff's office handled these cases early on and how Calkins responded. In the next episode, we'll look at ourselves. We'll focus on the media coverage of the disappearances and why some news outlets moved painfully slow to pick up this story, even as Terrence's family pleaded for coverage. We'll examine our own failings. And I'll speak with Tyler Perry, who made the national media finally perk up. There was something about this story in Marcia that really landed in my soul. I said, but you can't put a gag order on me. He said, don't be going around talking about, I said, to hell with you and to hell with your deputies. Somebody in there stinks. There is no doubt in my mind that this story just wasn't covered as much uh, because it was a young black male and an illegal immigrant. I, that's, that's my take, and that should infuriate a lot of people. I'm Janine Zeitlin, producer, reporter, writer. Audio editor and co-producer is Amanda Inscore. Sound design by Richard Chinqui of WGCU. This podcast is a collaboration of the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media and distributed by the NPR Network. If you like it, please leave us a review. 
If you have any information about this case, call the Collier Sheriff's Office or Crime Stoppers at 800-780-8477. My email is jzeitlin at gannett.com. Please support journalism like this by subscribing to Naples Daily News, the News Press, or donating to WGCU, or supporting your local news source. Reporting by Ryan Mills and Melanie Payne. Executive producers are Laura Grenius and WGCU executive producer Pamela James. Original theme music by Christopher Russell. Audio assistance by Jared Gonzalez. Additional support from Cindy McCurry-Ross, Corey Lewis, and Scott Stein. Legal review by Tom Curley. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.